Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? The electrochemical brain processes that result in murder are either deterministic or random or a combination of both. So wrote Yuval Noah Harari in Homo Deus. This is less a point about murder than it is about us. When scientists, a popular figure in his book, opened Homo sapiens' cranial black box, they failed to find any sign of the soul or the self or the mind or the will. Hormones and neurons, he writes, leave no space for freedom. It's a strangely common view today, popularised by a very popular genre of scientific writing. But it's also rather unsatisfying as it seems to reduce or altogether ignore everything that you or I think we are. Science can give us an unprecedentedly accurate and reliable understanding of the human brain, but, at least in this way, it comes at the cost of losing the human mind. But perhaps it isn't science. Perhaps it's hubris. And perhaps science isn't a replacement for the introspection offered by the arts, humanities, religion, literature. Undoubtedly, one of the great literary figures of our age is Marilyn Robinson, whose novels have been widely read and praised over many years. But Marilyn Robinson is also an essayist of distinction. And in her volume, Absence of Mind, The Dispelling of Inwardness from the Modern Myth of the Self, she tackles precisely this question of what happened to the human mind. Marilyn, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Before we tackle the core question of the mind, I want to ask about a few underlying ideas that affect how we approach this question. You begin the book by saying these essays examine one side in the venerable controversy called the conflict between science and religion. But you're not endorsing the idea of a fundamental conflict between those two, are you? No, I'm not. It seems to me as if it's the mission of true religious thought to know what the creation is, to see what is there to be seen, what is given, and so on. I think that kind of naturalistic questions have arisen to uh, confront religious assertions, which were unfortunately based on things that had simultaneous and equal adequate explanations in naturalistic terms, you know, uh, so that it was as if science could describe the origins of a phenomenon that religion had traditionally described. It was as if religion were being confuted, when in fact it simply means that it was available to two descriptions, that whatever phenomenon it is that was uh, an example, an instance. The idea that reality is open to more than one description is absolutely central to what we'll be talking about. And I know we'll return to that. 
I think part of the problem is of a mischaracterization of religion. You say quite early on that characterization of religion by those who dismiss it tends to reduce it to a matter of bones and feathers and wishful thinking, which I think is a lovely phrase, a matter of social bonding and false etiologies and the fear of death. Where do you think this characterization, this mischaracterization of religion comes from? The struggles that we've seen in, in Western civilization have implicated religion uh, kind of arbitrarily because it tended to be associated with political power or it was an adversary of political power. In those circumstances, polemics arise that are not necessarily uh, appropriate criticisms of the thing toward which they are directed. And so, for example, certain kinds of early scientific thought could be associated with heresy arbitrarily because of the circumstances of the time. History of conflict in, in our civilization is so complex, so deeply entwined with ethnic antagonisms and histories of warfare and so on, that people opportunistically took positions for or against almost anything in the heat of conflict. There's a particular trend in certainly Western European thought, though, of the way in which religious authorities have aligned themselves and indeed provided the foundation and justification for political authorities that set up a conflict whereby science came to be seen almost as a battering ram against this political and religious nexus. That affected the way in which the modern world came to understand religion, didn't it? Yes, it certainly did. One of the things that I do find strange, I mean, that comes along, you know, after Comte, basically, not because of him, but, you know, in rejection of him. This is August Comte in the early 19th century, isn't it? Yes. Yes, exactly. The idea of the self seems to be particularly easily dismissible from the point of view of science as it develops. And this this persists. I was reading um, a book about quantum theory, and the writer said that the self would be divided among the possibilities of many worlds, you know. And then he's, he said, so we'll simply have to give up our traditional ideas of the self. It seems to me as if the suggestion that we could have multiple selves is very pregnant, very interesting, full of all sorts of implications. And to simply dismiss traditional intuition of the self, which is one of the profoundest human experiences on as it were, scientific grounds, is more striking because it has so often been dismissed on scientific grounds. It's quite striking considering that the kind of individual egoism that seems to be characteristic of many of the people (laughs) who make the case against it, you know? Yes, yes. You mentioned Auguste Comte there, early 19th century French philosopher, hugely influential in his time, although hardly read at all today. Is that where you would date this incursion, this attack, if that's not too strong a word, on the idea of the self from a scientific or pseudo-scientific point of view? Or do you think it comes earlier than that? There are obviously always interests that 
want to undervalue the self as it occurs in other in other people, you know. Serfdom, for example, probably did not encourage a great deal of respect for the individuality of the average serf, etc. You know, it's uh, to put aside that aspect of human beings is convenient under many circumstances. Comte himself wanted to create a sort of quasi-religion around humanity. Yes, Thomas Huxley once witheringly described Comte's religion of humanity as Catholicism minus Christianity, didn't he? It received a lot of criticism in the 19th century. True. The uncriticized portion of science is the fact that it tends to remove the human from its description of the real. This is very bizarre. Science, if you look at it from street level, is very much uh, involved in the things that we dread most about our present circumstance. The human disposition toward what we have historically called evil has found expression over and over again in our weapons and our biological tampering and the rest of it. And it seems to me as if you can't really talk about science itself without taking a long look at what human beings are and what they're up to and what their antagonism toward themselves actually, you know, what, what its sources are. If the four horsemen of the apocalypse appear on the horizon, we will know what they're armed with. <laughs> All kinds of things that would not have been possible before the rise of modern science. And I'm not saying that science is somehow inhuman, or more anti-human than we are, but simply that the fact of its deep and troubling humanity is a subject that it constantly evades. Mm. Whenever it talks about human beings in the abstract, it's some sort of quasi-Adamic creature that has no history and that has no intentionality beyond breeding and devouring. This is a sentimentality. It has nothing to do with what we're actually dealing with in the world. One of the phrases you use in the books is descriptive sufficiency. I mean, it's very important to emphasize there's absolutely nothing in these essays that could be considered as anti-science. Rather, it seems to me what you're criticizing is scientific overreach or hubris or the idea that different sciences are descriptively sufficient. They are all you need to pin down what it is to be human. Is that a fair summary? Yes, yes, it is. I think very often especially in that sort of twilight area between people with actual scientific credentials and people who are sort of popularizers. That's a, a big area. And the tendency of those people in the range of popularizers, they make adamant descriptions of human beings, what they are and what they're capable of and so on. Uh, capable meaning something having to do with the nervous system more than having to do with the history of the world. The actual distinction you draw in the book is less between science and popularizers of science than it is between science and parascience. Tell us what it means by parascience and also give us a few examples of the kind of people you think are responsible for perpetuating these views. Richard Dawkins, of course, comes to mind and so does Stephen Pinker. There's a whole constellation of them, really. And a few of the more telegenic make the rest of them seem interesting and, and authoritative by association. 
<laughs> I shouldn't be saying this. In any case, if you read about contemporary physics at all, you feel like you're in a natural history museum when you read Richard Dawkins. You know, it's like, where's the dodo bird? <laughs> but he insists on that level of science, which is about 150 years old, as being science itself and as being the thing that the public has to internalize in order to be able to proceed on the soundest grounds, you know. I don't know quite how to describe it. It's a persona for which there is some kind of public appetite, which there are people always willing to gratify. But in terms of considering it science, I would say, no, it is not science. It might touch a surface of a scientific idea from time to time. Mm. I wonder if there are any discernible patterns in this particular trend. Two things occur to me. One, I think, is probably fairer than the other. The first is that many of the people who perpetuate this approach to deconstructing the human are men. <laughs> and the second one is that a disproportionate number of them have some background in evolutionary biology. Now, that's not exclusive. Pink is a psychologist, for example. But I wonder whether there are any particular traits or disciplines that orient science popularizers towards this deconstructed human. From the beginning, evolution has had an association with other enthusiasms that are not necessarily natural, even to evolution itself. When you talk about the Scopes trial, for example, you know, what was at stake at that time was the application of eugenics to the population. And the whole idea of eugenics is stratify society into desirable and undesirable, advanced evolutionarily speaking, or retrograde and so on. I mean, the word elitism is way too weak. This sort of alpha mentality is induced by this. And people are very much attracted by the idea, or some people are, that they can associate themselves with the bright, the intelligent, and they can recruit themselves simply by declaring their fealty to the idea. It's not science. It's not good manners. It's not anything desirable. When I was writing about the Scopes trial in a recent book, I actually read or read some of Hunter's Civic Biology, which was the book that in theory, at least, precipitated the whole trial. And it's a book that would never in a million years be published today because, as you say, as long as I giving biology, it inculcates a eugenic attitude that was very widespread in 1910s and 1920s, but obviously led to horrific consequences within a generation. So once again, it is a question of the science at heart, connecting with and providing a platform for a whole host of social, political, economic doctrines that are really much more complex than the science itself allows, isn't it? Yes, and the science gets it in some way because the implications of the kind of Darwinism that was associated with eugenics and so on is very determinist. You know, like you can put together a little family tree and figure out who is predisposed to criminality and all that sort of thing. That's not at all how, how biology works. And the science was inhibited by the supposedly scientific assumptions that dominated that field and still dominate in various parts. Let's tease apart that idea of selfhood then, because that is, of course, what the essays in the book are about. 
you say earlier on, my argument is that the mind as felt experience has been excluded from important fields of modern thought. And a little later on, the experience and testament of the individual mind is to be explained away, excluded from consideration when any rational account is made of the nature of the human being and being altogether. Now, we've talked about the certain scientific popularizers, among whom that is perpetuated. How far do you think that view actually is held more widely? It's an authoritative view that's propagated by Pinker and Dennett and others. How far do you think that view pervades into wider thought? I wonder often. I really do. It seems to me as if perhaps culture is adrift in a way that has no precedent in any history that I know of. And certainty can be as dreadful as any amount of drift, and there's no question about that. But I think that we're having a crisis in Western civilization because we're losing, really, the terms in which we have considered protection of the individual and religious freedom and freedom of speech and such things as being based in appropriate reverence for what human beings are. I mean, if there's anything that I don't hear in the great litany of complaint that comes from certain areas of American culture now, it is respect for human beings as human beings. And I find that very alarming. I sometimes play devil's advocate in these discussions. And indeed, I did a discussion with Pinker about four or five years ago, discussing and disagreeing about his book, Enlightenment Now. But if he were in on our conversation now, he would say, well, hang on a second. Recent generations have seen a massive advance in legal human rights around the world and a determination to protect the individual. So how does that square with what you're talking about, a lack of reverence for the human? Well, I mean, I assume he's looked into this question further than I have, what the human rights of the world are at this moment. I uh, think sometimes that they are more honored on paper than they are in the flesh. I think that recoil is an element in what we are seeing that is actually the rejection of the liberalization of, of concepts of human rights and so on. That there's a kind of, in a way, perhaps moral panic that is a consequence of old ideas being challenged or very novel ideas taking hold. I, at the moment, feel that authoritarianism has a status in the world that is a reaction, a recoil, from advances of human rights in the world and where reality will finally come down is a very open question at the moment. Mm. And I guess particularly in the US, I mean, we're having this conversation a day or so after it's announced that Trump is due to be arrested. And the pressure I have from this side of the Atlantic is that politics has certainly not got healthier in the last four or five years or so and is liable to get more unsettled and more polemical and more bitter in the next 18 months in the run-up to the election. Do you see there being a connection between this political turmoil and anger and underlying respect for the holistic understanding of the human mind and the self? You know, democracy at its best creates a kind of reverent peace around the human individual within which he or she lives life as he or she understands it to be meaningful. The degree of restraint 
that is necessary in order to immunize other people from the dominance of prevailing ideas and so on. That's patient, difficult, culturally encouraged, where it exists at all. Even very clearly marked restraints like laws and so on are overstepped increasingly as the prestige of democratic institutions seems to be declining. The self-discipline that is required to actually truly operate a democratic government is something that we have undervalued for a long time. The idea that restraint is our way of strengthening, that the option not to act is in many cases the honorable action. And the culture that supports that, which is humanist, is being phased out on many levels at the moment. Let me pick up one really interesting and important word in what you've just said, which is humanist. Now, I describe myself as a Christian humanist, and that's a a live tradition, particularly within the Catholic tradition. But increasingly, certainly over the last two generations or so, the word humanist, at least in the UK, has come to be a cipher for non or anti-religious. In what sense do you understand humanist, and in particular, the tradition of Christian humanism? Well, my center of interest for theology is early American Puritanism. And when they founded Harvard and they founded Yale, this was in order to, of course, create clergy, but they had to take a full course in the humanities before they could begin to be trained as clerics. They rebelled against having to read Ovid, you know, and you can sort of see their point. But... uh, (laughs) In any case, the idea that Christianity, in a very profound, very total way, is addressed to human circumstance on earth, including not only the minor vices that we might be prone to, but the institutions and nations and languages that we make, it is all in the embrace of God. In order to understand who we are and where we are, we consult what other human beings have said at their most articulate, have said under the most pressing circumstance, and so on. We learn what human beings are by seeing where people's minds wander. Humanities is an instruction in the value of human beings, in the value of the interior life of human beings. So I don't see any conflict. I don't think even historically there has been a conflict in religion as I have understood it. And importantly, that tradition of theology is not set against that of the humanities. I think for many people today, they see them as some kind of tension, whereas historically speaking, and even interestingly within Protestant cultures, we can understand this within Catholic cultures, but even within Protestant cultures, the point you're making is that that theology was complementary with an understanding and an immersion in the humanities and not an alternative to it. Exactly, exactly. They had to pass through a humanities education and a good one (laughs) before they could study theology. It was foundational. It wasn't some antagonistic other worldview. I wonder whether that also feeds into, I think it was C.P. Snow's famous lecture about the two cultures and how Western intellectual life was split. There was a chasm, not between theology and humanities, but between science and the humanities. And that the two different camps were 
willfully ignorant of one another. Is that a similar point? You mentioned our culture being adrift earlier on. I wonder whether another metaphor is that it is profoundly divided between scientific and humanistic conceptions of the human. I'd be more comfortable with that if I felt that what people are being influenced by is actually science. This is your point about parascience. Exactly. I mean, even Richard Dawkins with his talk about brights and so on. I mean, the idea that there is a privileged clan among us, this is something that lingers on from the bad early days of Darwinism. And it influences people's thinking much more than anything scientifically legitimate influences their thinking. Do you have any counterexamples of genuine science that is in the popular bloodstream that act as a counterweight to the kind of parascience you've been talking about? Who, for example, would be getting it right? Well, our undergraduate system, you can take a course in astronomy or you can take a course in biology or physics without investing your education in those particular fields. And they come away amazed, charmed. But how do you apply that sort of thing? I mean, for example, apparently quite a few people are very interested in quantum physics and lots of books are written about it. It's legitimately extremely beautiful and interesting. But what do you conclude from it? I mean, I conclude from it, but I consider myself, uh, you know, a little prone to conclusion, perhaps. In any case, I think that people know more than they have any notion of being able to apply. And that's the kind of thinking that needs philosophers and genuine popularizers of science. One thing I want to tease out here is some of the terminology that we've been using. And I have switched between mind and self quite freely in this conversation. I don't think we've yet used the word soul, but that is also a word that is bandied about in these discussions. Do you see there being any significant difference in our choice of those three words, for example, when we're talking about the way in which parascience has illegitimately dismantled the mind? We've been talking about dismantling the mind, the absence of mind, and the subtitle of your book uses the word self, and occasionally in the book you use the word soul. Are they interchangeable in this context? No, not strictly. Historically, when you look at poets like Whitman and, and, and Dickinson, the soul is a companion. It goes back to the Pilgrim's Progress, and well, way before that. But, you know, the self is what we take to be what we do, what we cannot avoid doing. The mind is where we reconcile our experience to our ongoing sense of reality, really. The soul is the sort of uh, companion self that is uninjured in a certain sense and very prone to injury <laughs> in, in the same terms. I mean, you can lose your soul, according to an authority on the subject. But the mind is a great pleasure. The mind is yourself reasoning with yourself. It's wonderful. The self is basically what you try to situate tolerably in the world. <laughs> but the soul is the sweet companion. It's interesting, people like Luther always spoke of the soul as female. He imagined himself as a bride dressed in a golden dress, and that was his female soul, which indicates a kind of intimacy and distance simultaneously. The soul is the, the essential being. It is the companion. 
it is responsible for you and you're responsible for it, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think the loss of it is a very great loss and has happened very broadly. Yes. We had on a previous show John Cottingham talking about his book In Search of the Soul, which is a beautiful, profound, short book on the subject. And one of the things he tries to do there is dispel the assumptions of substance dualism that are always so regularly smuggled into any conversation about the soul and then left as a hostage to fortune to the popular parascience writers who point out that what exactly is the soul made of and how does it inter interact with the physical body and, and so on and so forth. And he favours the more Aristotelian idea of the soul as the form of the body. Is that a view that you're sympathetic with? I'm very much influenced by, by quantum, actually. You know, I mean, the idea of the physical, that's simply the convention of our own experience. The physicality in that sense just dissolves at atomic levels. The overwhelming predominance of reality is a matter of elusive electrons and so on. It's naive to say that the physical is the defining reality it dissolves instantly under scrutiny, along with so many other things. I mean, one of the things that we know is that reality is a system in which there need not be local cause in order to produce effect. So how does the soul interact with the body? That's a very naive question. It's not appropriate to the vocabulary of understanding that we ought to have at this point. All that stuff just clatters like armor, something left over from another way of thinking. If you can't say what a photon is, because it is so elusive in the terms of any physical description, then you don't need to worry if you can't describe the soul in those kinds of terms either. Mm. Well, that goes back to the point that we touched on much earlier in our conversation about vocabulary and description. It strikes me that one of the problems here is the attempt to impose a single, rather flat vocabulary drawn from the sciences, or arguably drawn from the pseudosciences, and apply them to much richer, more textured, more multi-layered aspects of reality like the human. Hence, you know, the kind of points that I actually talk about in my introduction to our interview at Yuval Noah Hariri, dismissing the idea of the will and saying there's only... <laughs> neurons and hormones. That seems to me to be a fundamental attempt to collapse multi-layered language into a single legitimate vocabulary and mm -hmm. in the process deconstructing everything that we recognise with the human. And that then seems to me to be an invitation to respond by saying there are more ways of responding and describing and articulating and understanding our complex reality than are provided by certain scientific disciplines. One of the things I always tell my students is that the human brain is the most complex object known to exist in the universe. And overwhelmingly, they find this very liberating. <laughs> Given that, when we look at the universe, why is it the last thing we consider? It has to be the ultimate expression, so far as we know, of what is possible in the reality that we would speak of as the universe. Why doesn't science begin there? Why does it not only not begin there, but actually, it seems, have an impulse to exclude the fact of this 
overwhelming expression of what physics finally results in. Our brains are so brilliant because physics is of a kind to accommodate the kind of thinking and knowing that we do. That's amazing. It is, but I, I wonder provocatively whether science is capable of describing it in the way that you say there, because it so often operates on principles of reduction, of splitting things up, of understanding things in their component elements, that in itself deconstructs the complex interlinked thing, the human mind, that is, in this instance, the object of study. Do you see what I mean? Well, you know, if I saw the problem approached and the approach fail, I would think differently, perhaps. But they never talk about the mind in a way, or of the brain, in a way that would make it accessible understanding and in the kind of terms that are really appropriate to it. You get these people saying things, even people with scientific pretensions saying, the brain is a piece of meat. Well, for heaven's sake, <laughs> we're all pieces of meat, you know. The miracle of life is a piece of meat. What are you talking about? Describe to me how this piece of meat operates and I will be impressed. It's a denial. I don't understand the source of it. But to say that it has two or three motives that drive all behavior and so on, that's ridiculous on its face. And it's certainly not based on any kind of inquiry into what a mind is, what a brain is, what the history of the mind is, which is the history of the world. Well, let's end with that question of what the mind is. There's a lovely line towards the end of the book where he says, proof of the existence of mind, we have only history and civilization, art, science and philosophy, which I think <laughs> puts it very nicely. And there are also a couple of rather beautiful flashes throughout the book when you talk about the haunting compatibility of our means of knowing with the universe of things to be known, that compatibility between the mind knowing and the universe that is known. And also, at one point, you ask rhetorically of the mind, does it open on ultimate truth, at least potentially, or in momentary glimpses? Give us a vision, your vision, of what the human mind is, what it's capable of, what it points us towards? Well, it's us. It's the great definition of ourselves. When you read Calvin talking about the image of God in the human being, he's talking about the brilliance of a human being, the fact that we create and dream and solve problems in our sleep and so on, you know, that we are brilliant. There's a question, then what is that? With the implication that we're here to know, to know what is available to be known. It's too simplistic to say that the world is a contest for a human being. And the question is, the contest is how much can you see and how much value can you discover in what it is that you do see? How much can you understand? Granting that people have different worlds to interpret and different means of interpretation. I think that the poetry in good prose reminds you of things that you know and didn't realize you knew until you saw them. It's the great bond among us. It's the great mystery among us. It is the interpreter of all things into what we take to be human things, the things of culture and civilization. The book is called Absence of Mind, The Dispelling of Inwardness from the Modern Myth of the Self. Marilyn Robertson, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. A pleasure. Next week, I'll be speaking to the academic Ishwar Prasad about his book on the future of money. 
I think as societies, as concerned citizens, we should be very wary of leaving technology to itself because it might lead us to a much darker place instead. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. <laughs>